I'm so excited to introduce our very first guest on the podcast, who is a medical doctor, a physiotherapist, a personal trainer, and founder of the Triage Method. Ladies and gents, we have Dr. Gary McGowan. Thank you very much. Uh, Honored to be here. Glad to be first. Absolutely delighted to have you on, Gary. And yeah, just delighted that you're my very first guest. And love if you could just start by just chatting a little bit about what you do for anyone that doesn't know and kind of how you got to where you are. Yeah, no problem. So, so yeah, like as you said, I'm a, a doctor, a physio, and a trainer. But like at the moment, my my main um, thing that I do for work is online training. You know, similar to yourself and similar to I'm sure other people that would listen to the podcast. So I've just graduated from medicine and I'm on a year break basically before I start work in the hospital next year. So um, the business I run is called Triage and I'm co-founded that with uh, my colleague Patty Farrell back in 2016. And I've been doing online coaching in some form for, I suppose it's eight to 10 years or something at this point. I've spoken about eight years properly. Um, and that kind of interest in fitness in online coaching is what ultimately led me down the path then of studying physio and medicine, just being interested in health more broadly and wanting to be more qualified and, and to take that further. So as I said, Triage has been up and running for about six years. We do online coaching. We have a heavy emphasis on putting out educational content. It's one of the things that uh, we pride ourselves in. And uh, we also have a nutrition course. So over time, become more interested in trying to educate uh, other trainers and trying to educate, I suppose, the general public as well. So that's something I, I probably enjoy even more than coaching, to be honest, is, is really? actually educating others. Yeah. So that's kind of probably the, that's kind of the, the future where I'd like to take triage is more so educating other trainers down the line. And do you see yourself kind of moving away from coaching altogether kind of long-term? Well, the, the plan of action at the moment is like when I start, um, in the hospital just work next year, I'll down, I'll reduce my client numbers considerably. So probably yeah. down to, you know, five to 10 clients that are like really within the niche that I absolutely like to work with, you know, clients that maybe have been with me for a long time or that type of thing. But, you know, I, I think like as a, as a coach or, or as anyone running a business, I would say you have to focus on, I think, where your skill set is best used. And I think that, you know, me handing off some of the things I've learned through, through medicine, through physio, through years of coaching to other trainers that either through triage that we hire or that we educate, I think it's probably a better use of my time longer term rather than, you know, just filling up all of my time with coaching clients. Yeah, hundred percent. And actually it's interesting there that you mentioned your niche, because I've heard you talk a lot before about how you have such a diverse range of clients and that you don't really have a specific niche and I think that's so interesting because I I also have like a, a wide range of interests and I think you know in starting up a business everyone's like niche down niche down and go yeah. from there but you've kind of done it differently so I'm interested to hear like what are the kind of clients that you consider your niche yeah so like for me my, my clients are as you say like very diverse so I have your your standard you know weight loss clients people want to get in a bit of, bit better shape they want to improve their diet they're kind of on the beginner end of the spectrum i have some people that are more on the athletic end of the spectrum people that run marathons that want to do ironmans and things like that um, and then a lot of people that are injured um often people that maybe know what they're doing in the gym or know what they're doing with their training 
but they've hit a roadblock with recurring injuries or injuries that they haven't been able to deal with. And I think that if I was to, you know, niche down and say like, where's my skill set absolutely best used in coaching? It's probably somewhere around there. So people that are at that crossroads between they kind of maybe need to be seeing a physio, but they also kind of need someone with strength conditioning or personal training expertise. Um, that's really where I think my, my, my skills are, are best used in coaching. If I was to say like, pick one niche, uh, there are the clients okay. I, I, I do enjoy working with as well as overcoming some of those roadblocks to injury or roadblocks with pain and injury. And in particular, I think um, addressing people's mindset around pain and injury, because a lot of people start to think that they're real fragile and they shy away from activities. And a lot of the things that I promote are related to showing people what they can do with their bodies again, building up confidence, building up resilience and taking them back to a place where they can perform well. And I think as well, something that I've found with injured athletes is that they almost like lose their sense of identity when they can't move. So like, what would you say to someone like that if they're, you know, in terms of mindset, like what is kind of the biggest barrier you would say with people like that? Yeah, this is actually something I love to talk about because I've been there myself in terms of mm-hmm. la- last year, I had a very bad hamstring tear, tore the whole thing off the bone, needed surgery and everything. Um, and then tore the other one this year. So I've had a bit of a, you know, tumultuous time with injuries myself the last year or so. And one of the things that I, that I was asked a lot was how did I kind of protect my mental health during that mm-hmm. fight? You know, how, do, how did you not, you know, get down in the dumps over those injuries? And the main thing I always say to people is that you need to be diversified. If you're all in on one thing, then you're inherently fragile. And that's mm. something that's, that's worth it if you're like a professional athlete. So for example, if you're a professional rugby player, let's say, and that's like your main thing, it's your only thing, it's where you put all your time and attention, then you have to go all in. But you do that yeah. accepting the risk that if you have a career-ending injury, you don't have any skills, maybe you don't have other, other interests. And of course, athletes do. But at that yeah. level, it's acceptable to, take, to have those uh, risks. For the general trainee, which I would consider myself to be, you know, I, I'm very interested in fitness, but I, I'm not a professional athlete or anything. For me, when I got injured, I had, you know, my business that I could, you know, divert my attention to. I had medicine I could divert my attention to. Other hobbies and interests, you know, like reading about different things or whatever. I was able to put my attention to those things so that I didn't feel like there was a big part of me that was lost. It was one yeah. part of my identity, but not all of my identity. And this is something that crosses over into many other domains, such as, for example, body image in uh, the fitness industry as well, where if someone puts all of their identity uh, attached to how they look and their physique, then as soon as anything disrupts that, of course, you feel awful about yourself and you feel lost. It's one of the reasons people end up in a perpetual cycle of of dieting or perma-dieting, because that's all they've ever known. Their identity is well, I'm the person that diet. That's what I've always gone to the gym for. It's all, what I've always managed my nutrition for. So what I always say to people is try to have a diversity of things that compose your sense of identity and that will make you robust um, when those events happen that take you out of one of those areas. Yeah, I think that's so important. I actually, I did my dissertation on disordered eating in athletes and it was mad, the, the mental health in athletes, you know, after a big competition, it was like they didn't know who they were without the sport it's funny that you say because you know in elite athletes if you're a professional you have to be that way but like what would you say to someone say if they are 
in that position to protect their mental health, you know, if they are injured or if, you know, in retirement, like what do they do then? If Are they completely lost, you know? Yeah, like personally, what I would always say is have something in your back pocket all the time. And mm. what I mean by that, it's kind of like, um, it's a bit like, you know, having savings in the bank. Even if your income is coming in every week, you can rely on your salary. Probably still best to just have something in the bank just in case. Company goes mm. bust, whatever happens, you lose your job. Yeah. You need something in the bank. It's the exact same thing here when it comes to um, if you're like an athlete that is all in, you know, have something that you could potentially fall, fall back on. You know, there are some athletes that maybe they're into, um, I don't know, woodwork on the side, let's say. Like they've got some carpentry skills or, or handy skills that if it came down to it and their career ended tomorrow, they'd have something that they could put their time and attention into, but also something that they could maybe, you know, do some work in. You know, so I think yeah. that it's really important not only to have interest, but maybe to have a couple of other skills that if necessary, you could fall back on them. Because like you say, it is a big problem in athletes because they're left with a massive hole in their chest effectively when they lose their sport. They're not sure where to put their attention, put their attention anymore. And of course, you see certain examples where that's not the case. Like if you're, I don't know, Roy Keane or a very high level soccer player or something like that. You get a job in Sky Sports. The gap is filled. But if you're yeah. that, if you're an elite athlete where those opportunities aren't there, well, now you're super lost. So what I would always say is try to just have something up your sleeve for a rainy day. Yeah, hundred percent. And you touched on body image there as well. Do you ever notice, like with clients, that there would be a kind of a difference in how men and women would view body image, or like how you would approach that with them? If they had like issues there. Yeah. I mean, like, I think like personally, I actually don't think there's that much of a difference. Like maybe there's a, there's a qualitative difference for sure in terms of what composes the body image concern, you know, like men obviously, you know, have different physique goals than women. And then, then when we look at like where people store body fat or the muscles they're trying to develop, those things vary in terms of like the, the qualitative. I, I wouldn't say I see that much of a difference like on the ground in terms of the number of women that I coach to have body image concerns versus the number of men that have body image concerns. I think maybe but men are less likely to use those words, you know, like mm -hmm. oh, have it like you see women like women all the time would say, Oh, I'm having a bad body image day. Like I've never had yeah. a guy say that to me. <laughs> be honest. But they, but 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 they're saying the same thing effectively, you know. Yeah. So for example, um I have a one client who had a super successful um diet, got really lean. And then we had a couple of those conversations coming out as he was trying to gain weight again. You know, I said to him, like, I just need you to know that you are going to feel like fatter than you would have when you were at this weight last last time. This is something that's probably going to make you feel uncomfortable. Let me know if that's the case, you know, and we can chat about it. Okay. And what we've done there is just kind of reframed the reframe. It kind of goes back to that identity component again, like yeah. view, viewing his training as something that's serving performance. So I, I said to him, you know, when you were on the way down, you were looking in the mirror and you were thinking you were measuring your progress by, you know, how defined your abs were. There are other, the grass is always greener on the other side. So now on the way up, you'll fill out the t-shirt more, but now you're not going to focus on that. You know, you're going to be focusing on the mm -hmm. fact that, oh, and if it's softer, even though your performance is improving. So it's just about trying to reframe some of those issues um, maybe in a slightly different way 
for men and maybe I'll use different language, but even within men or women, like I, I just treat it as on a per client basis. Yeah. What are your concerns? What's the language you're using? What page are you on? And then we come to it um, that way. So I do think that like body image concerns are a problem for men, for sure. That is supported by the research as well. Um, and that's, that, again, I address it, I think, in a, in a fairly similar way on the ground. Yeah. And do you think as well, I actually had someone reach out to me and say that he he struggled with body image and things, but he felt like there was more support there for women um, in that it was probably talked about more and women will say the words body image, whereas men won't. And do you think that maybe the, like that's a barrier for men to actually overcome that and get to a healthier place with that? Or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that I'm... I think that a lot of the time it's, it's maybe a bit slower to come up in conversation with men in, in, mm-hmm. from a, in a coaching capacity at least. Um, and I think a lot of guys will just kind of brush it under the table and try to um, over like willpower their way out of it, let's say. Yeah. You know, um, I've, I've spoke to one guy recently who was he's not a client, but he was just saying he had a really tough time with binge eating after, um, after a, a long diet, which was which was poorly managed by his coach. And like, it was just, it was just not a good, a good approach to dieting, but he had rapidly regained weight. And now he was really struggling. He had to coach himself, wasn't posting on social media anymore because he didn't want people to see his face and want people to see his body. Yeah. And like, had never mentioned this on his page, you know, wasn't willing to talk about it. So I do think there, that that is a bit of a barrier. Um, and I think that it does take a bit of time kind of working with, with a guy to make him a bit more comfortable in, in, in talking about that. But it is important, particularly because yeah. it can, even if you have performance goals, it can significantly inhibit you because what ends up happening is guys will start to diet again. You know, they they go through a period of maybe binging, struggling with body image, having a poor relationship with food, and then they have to diet down again to try to reclaim that identity that they once had rather than actually working on the problem at hand. And I think as well with that, I feel like the industry is kind of moving away from aesthetic goals, which I think to a point is good. But I think like I've I've just noticed with inquiries that people are kind of saying things like, oh, I want to get a bit leaner, but I feel like I shouldn't. I feel like I yeah. should just say, oh, I want to be healthier. And it's like there's this shame around having an aesthetic goal. And I think it's finding the balance between approaching things in a in a healthy manner, but also not putting shame on having an aesthetic goal because I think sometimes with the hope of being more body positive we're actually kind of missing the point and we're actually adding shame for people that actually do have physique goals and I'd love to know your thoughts on that yeah I'd absolutely agree with that and I, I think I've been you know vocal about that on social media a couple of times like personally like I'm I'm dieting at the moment I'm trying to get leaner there is an aesthetic goal there is there some mm. vanity probably that's okay. That's what I say to yeah, clients all the there's time. There's nothing like, wrong with if it. You, if you inquire, if like clients do the exact same thing to me, they're like, oh, is it a, is it a bit of a shallow, shallow goal? I don't want to just say that I want to, yeah. you know, look better. It's like, look, that's fine. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's reality. Like most people, they might admit it, but most people want to look a bit better, you know, in, in some way. Yeah. And, that, and that's perfectly fine. The, the, the role that we have as coaches is not to get rid of those to desires, but rather to make sure that we keep them in, in, a, in, a, in a balanced manner. We want to find a happy medium where someone is, they have a goal, but maybe like if they come in and say, I want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Chris Bumstead, it's like, okay, right. That's not realistic. Okay. 
We have to be realistic about what you're yeah. going to achieve. And I want you to know that up front so that you're not disappointed. Because if that's your mm-hmm. comparison or all these social media influencers are your comparison, then that is going to lead to poor body image. And that might harm your relationship with food and various other problems down the line. But that doesn't mean that wanting to improve is bad. It's just a case of trying to educate our clients as to what's realistic for them, then screening for things like, are you in a good position to try and diet right now, let's say, or are you in, are you in a position to improve your physique right now and then moving forward responsibly? Um, I don't think yeah. it's... I don't think it's realistic to tell people they shouldn't want to change their physique. Like, they, like that's just, it just doesn't make sense to tell people what they should or shouldn't want when they're coming to you as coach, you know? Yeah. And also, I think as a coach, it's like important that like we don't know what is best for other people sometimes. Like we can advise, but like, I think it's important to not prescribe. You know what I mean? I feel like it's more sort of a guidance and recommendations. But at the end of the day, People can make their own choices. I think if you're telling someone, no, you can't do that, that's not really coaching. That's like a power trip almost. Yeah, 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 I'd agree. I think that's the case in like probably 95% of cases. There are those small percentage of cases where as a coach, and this is the hardest thing that people struggle Mm -hmm. with, you have to draw the line and say, I'm not helping you take this further. I've I've lost clients. I've lost clients in, in the past with that. It's a really difficult thing. But almost always, it turns out to be the the right decision. I've had people who wanted me to continue preparing them for like bikini competitions and keep getting mm-hmm. leaner. But, you know, they were already in a position where the relationship with food was poor. They, you know, had missed a couple of periods, things like that. And I said, yeah. no, I'm not taking this further. You're not ready. They, your client isn't going to like you at the time when you, when yeah. you say that sometimes, depending on their headspace. But that's really where being a responsible coach does come into it. Yeah. So there are those percentage of cases. You just have to yeah. know the difference because that's very different from just a general fat loss goal that someone might have if they're healthy, you know? Completely. Yeah, completely. Even just on that, like kind of just touching on balance and things. I know that you started up triage when you were still studying and I would just love to like hear your perspective on balance in terms of work, business, because you post a lot on your social media about like your kind of day in the life and your routine and a lot of people would look at that and be like what the hell like that's crazy but I'd love to like hear your perspective on what balance is and what's actually realistic yeah absolutely so like firstly I never tell anyone to live like me it's a really important thing because sometimes I share my day in the life and people people come and they're like uh oh this is so unsustainable why mm. like i i couldn't do this it's like i didn't tell you to do that bro i'm just showing you what you're I showing do. yeah like, i totally admit i'm half nuts like that's not perfectly fine <laughs> that's, yeah that's, <laughs> just, that's that's just me but like but that is, but it's important because like the, when you say something like let's say work-life balance it's the, the implication there is that there's kind of a positive and a negative that you're trying to balance that life yeah. is the thing that's the good thing and then work is the thing it's the bad thing and that you have to balance the two that yeah. is the case if you hate your work i don't yeah. hate my work i absolutely love it it's one of my main sources of like meaning and purpose in life is my education my work i love all of that and therefore i i probably have a bit of an unorthodox view on the concept of work-life balance because like i i get joy from working more i'm in yeah. colombia at the moment but like taking a day to like not work if we're you know, on a day trip or something doesn't necessarily make me happy. Like I'm, I'm itching to go and do my work. I have things I want to work on. I have projects I want to work on. I have things I want to learn about. And I totally get 
that not everyone is like that. It's perfectly yeah. fine. But that's my own perspective. So I, I, I personally find that there's a strong interrelationship between my work and my life because my work is what gives me meaning. It's what makes me happy. It, it, bring, it brings me joy. And also my work is kind of very intrinsically related to my life in the sense that it's fitness. And, you know, yeah. a big part of my life is, is, is related to, to training, to, to eating well, to trying to sleep well and to take care of myself. So there's this, like, it's, it's probably, it's very different to maybe like working in finance and just being at the yeah. nine to five at the desk and, and not enjoying that and then trying to do fitness and everything outside of that because they're much more related for me. So in, in that sense, balance for me is probably a little bit different. I think that when you think about balance generally, what you should be thinking is, you know, are, are my needs as a person being met? You know, so do you feel like you have meaning and purpose in what you're doing? If you're stuck in a job maybe that you don't enjoy, but it's, it's necessary for you to make money, that's perfectly fine. But then you need to maybe emphasize the life component more where that you yeah. need other hobbies, you need other interests that do bring you that meaning and purpose. So I think it's about understanding where you are as an individual, what role work plays for you, and then you can start to figure out that balance equation. 100%. And like you said there, like you get so much joy from your work and obviously like you're on social media and things like that. Yeah. Like how do you actually separate who you are from what you do? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's a question I ask myself a lot, to be honest. Who I am is actually very closely related uh, to what I do, I would say. I do, I think, at least posting on my own page online, I think I give people a good glimpse into the type of person that I am, how I think, etc. There are certain things that I try to, you know, be private. And sometimes I, I wrestle with that, you know, if it, even if I'm like, reading a book on a topic. I mean, it's not fitness related or anything. And I'm reading that book and I think, you know, right, well, I took a picture of that, share it online. And often I'm like, no, actually, no. I, like there's some things I just, I just like, I want to enjoy this for what it is and not have it related to posting. Even sometimes if I'm out and about and I'm, you know, some sort of experience or you're at a concert, whatever it happens to be, I just don't want to post some things because I'm like, I don't want it all to be attached together, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think um, having good relationships with family, with friends, with significant others, all those, those sorts of things also really help with kind of separating who you are from what you do. Because if you can yeah. prioritize those things and make sure that they're nourished and maintained, that does help you with that, that separation. Um, and I think also as a, I, I think particularly in fitness, I'd encourage people to not have like, or, or to, to try and have non-fitness hobbies, because one of the mm. things that can really suck the life out of your longevity and, and your joy as it relates to fitness, if, if all you do is fitness, all you post yeah. about is fitness, suddenly the hobby that you used to enjoy is now your work and there's no separation. Yeah. And that can be very draining long-term. So I have other things that I'm interested in. I have things that I don't post. I have, you know, jiu-jitsu which is technically fitness but i don't really post about it it's just a big part of my training that i really enjoy yeah. and i don't feel pressure to post about it i don't feel pressure to try to educate others on it it's just that's just what i do yeah. um so so they're all really important things for me yeah i love that and um just in terms of like social media i really look up to you in the way that you share content and i think it's really hard to get out evidence-based information with nuance and with context and everything at the moment when you know 
the algorithm loves controversy and the algorithm loves these short videos and you know you need to hook in people in two seconds how have you kind of navigated that especially since you were posting for such a long time and how have you kind of stayed current while also still being ethical with everything yeah it's it's a, it's a hard thing to do and i think it's only getting harder as well because like we as as you look around at the kind of influencers and fitness personalities that that grow their pages i think there's often a bit of like selling your soul you know it's yeah. it, you, you have to be kind of dancing and cursing and making like explicit yeah. jokes and and this type of thing mm -hmm. to, to get your content out there and personally yeah. I, I just have a line that I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going there. Even if it would get me more followers, I'm just, yeah. I'm just not doing that. So I think there isn't a part where you have to play the game with the kind of infotainment yeah. stuff. Like, like something I've been playing around with recently is doing more like reaction videos, you know, to content that I would yes. disagree with because people yeah. like that. It is a bit, it gives the controversy, but at the same time, all I'm doing is, you know, showing the video and then using that as leverage where people are interested to then share something that is evidence-based and it's actually yeah. useful and practical. So yeah. I think there's a, there's a bit of playing the game, but I think you as an individual have to know maybe where you draw your own your own boundaries in terms of, you know, ethics and morality, let's say. You yeah. know, I, like I, I don't want to be the guy that just, I don't know, only like curses and makes those explicit jokes and just talks about the same basic stuff over and over again. Like, you know, calorie deficit, calorie deficit, or just shouting at people to be more disciplined and things like that. You know, there's there's lots of ways you can get more attention online. Um, but personally, I just try to stay true to like what I feel are my values. And then mm -hmm. also thinking, thinking about like the people, let's say the, that, that you look up to or, or maybe peers that you would respect. And I would say, try to only have a handful of them. You don't want to try to impress everyone, but yeah. I would at least like the peers that I respect to be able to look at my content and say, yeah, that's pretty solid content, you know? Or you're not you're not just trying to be too clickbaity or or oversimplifying things. That I try yeah. to make sure that there's at least some level of nuance while still being able to to make it practical. Hundred percent, because I think it's so easy to get caught up in trying to be popular and go viral, and then forget that actually, what what am I doing this for? You know, and what like what is my goal here? And I think I think with you as well, you can just tell that you're so true to yourself, and that you share things that you know most people may not agree with and that's true to you and like I think the way that you think about things it's like well if there's enough evidence to prove me wrong then I'll change my mind and I really love the way that you present your opinion without kind of being offensive towards anyone else even if that opinion is something that's a bit controversial or yeah. you know not controversial but like you might be in a minority to think that way and like how have you kind of navigated that if you've gotten kind of a bit of negative feedback from that yeah, like, I mean, that, that's part of it is probably personality related. Um, mm -hmm. I think um, being a, a bit of a more disagreeable person that's that's willing to have those arguments. Yeah. Um, like, I, I think that's actually something I think it's, it's important for, I think, women in fitness in particular, because like one of the personality dis uh, differences that you do see over and over in psychology research between men and women is that the people that are most disagreeable generally tend to be men. And yeah. on average, women tend to be a little bit more agreeable. And yeah. therefore, um, you know, if you're a female, you know, personal trainer, often there's a tendency to try to maybe 
please other people a bit more or not be willing to just, you know, stand your ground and actually hold your view. So that's something I would encourage people. There are definitely lots of men that are over agreeable too, but there is that, that little bit of a dichotomy there on, on the personality side. So for me, at least, I would say I'm, I'm generally a bit more of a disagreeable person. I would happily disagree with someone in person and be able to go back and forth on that. And I think that then carries over online. But it is hard. And I would say, like, when I do get in some sort of conflict online or I know I've said something that's maybe a little bit controversial, even if I'm not trying to be controversial, I'm just like, look, you, you asked me a question. Here's my view. It does still cause some level of, of low, low level anxiety. You know, like, let's say it's the evening and I put up the story and I'm going to bed that night. It's in my head. I'm thinking, you know, are there people responding to that or I'm waiting the next morning? I'm like, oh, God. I mm. an influx of people giving out to me here. Like, um, and that's just something that I think it, it kind of comes with the territory. If you want to have an impact and you want to spread what you feel to be true, you want to spread the truth, then that's something you kind of have to be willing to accept as a trade-off. Are a few messages of disagreement worth it for you to put out views that are true or views that you want to stand by? Of course, you know, yeah. Truth is worth anything at the end of the day. Like, I mean, yeah. you don't want to be the person that just, you know, gives in to, to the crowd. So that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I come from, but it's not easy, you know, and I totally emphasize yeah. the people that are maybe more agreeable and, and always want real people pleasers. That's difficult to do that. Yeah. And I think as well, it's like, you know, no one's perfect. Like you're always going to have stuff that you're like, oh God, I wish I worded that differently. Or maybe I should have sure. put that over, you know. And I think as well, it comes in with clients and stuff when they make mistakes. I'm like, expect yourself to make mistakes. You're a human being, you know, yeah. like you're going to make mistakes, like set that expectation there. Like you're not going to be like, stop imagining your future self to be this perfect person. It's not going to happen. Um, but I'd love to know for you as a coach through all your years, what would you say are the biggest mistakes you've made as a coach that you wouldn't do now? Yeah, there's, there's always one that sticks with me. And, and to, be, to be fair, it only happened once and I learned from the mistake so quickly and I was I was only about I don't know was I 19 or 20 at the time it was in my first kind of few programs I had done for people but it was just the use of one word and it still sticks with me it was I was just giving this client you know calories and macro targets and I was educating on you know how calorie deficit macros all this stuff works yeah and I said you know once you follow this, this is, you know, this is foolproof. And that was the word that I said, you know, foolproof. This is a foolproof plan of action. Never used that word since, but I said, this is a foolproof plan of action. And like the coaching process, like there, I, I think if I recall correctly, they, like we didn't really engage back and forth that much. Maybe there was mischecking. I didn't communicate well, whatever it happened to be. But it came to the end and, and she turned around to me and said, you know, um, like, I'm a little bit disappointed in my results because you said this was going to be foolproof. And I saw mm-hmm. oh, that, that word. It just came back to yeah. me and it sticks with me since because it's the only time I've ever said anything like that. And it's just one of those lessons that I learned. You know, yeah. never, never present what you're doing with an excess of certainty. You know, sometimes yeah. maybe in, in marketing, people can be very certain in yeah. how they present things. And I think if you do that on an individual client basis, that will come back to bite you. So like what I always say, say to clients is that, you know, like now at least, I always say to people, there's, there's always an element of uncertainty in terms of the results you will, you will have. When I set your calories initially, 
I don't know exactly how you're going to respond to this, but we'll monitor this over the first couple of weeks. There will be changes. Don't worry if things aren't perfect immediately. I'm your coach. This is coaching. It's not a fixed program. We'll make changes. So I think don't don't try to be too certain as a coach. Don't try to be too authoritative. I think that leads that leads to you not taking ownership of the coach enough and putting too much onus on the client so that when they don't yeah. get results, it's always their fault. Whereas what yeah. I would always say as a coach is if someone's not getting results, that's my fault. Okay. Even if they're not adhering, that's my fault first. I have to take ownership of that. What's wrong yeah. with the plan that that person can't adhere? What's wrong with the plan that that person feels the nutrition's too difficult or the training's too difficult? Always start there. And of course, there are some people that just aren't sticking to the plan. They're, maybe they're not interested in that fine. But always start with trying to take ownership yourself as a coach. That's my rule of thumb. 100%. And I think as well that that will, that allows your clients to trust you then because yeah. you're, you know, you're saying, well, actually, it's my job to make sure that this is the best approach for you. It's, it's on me. Do you know what I mean? And then I feel like the client can kind of be like, okay, this guy is, you know, knows what he's doing. Um, but as well, I just got a few questions as well coming in for the podcast. So do you mind if we go through a quick Q and A then? So this question was from another coach. So tips for hiring people and when to know when to hire. Good question. Um, so firstly, like I will, I, I will admit that when it comes to like our hiring so far, our triage, like everyone that we've hired has been either someone that we've been maybe peers with for a while in terms of like, I've known them a long time online. Mm-hmm. I've watched their coaching yeah. work or we've coached them. Um, so they're all Triage clients or they're long-term followers of Triage. So yeah. there's always been like quite a close relationship, you know, with, yeah. with Brian, with Dean, with Nicola, with Luke, et cetera. They've always been people that were close to Triage. I yeah. think what's difficult is then stepping out beyond that. But what I would say is initially when you're hiring people, I think it is wise, like if you're hiring other coaches, to hire those that you have been maybe following for a while or, they, or they've followed your work. They know what you're about. That makes it yeah. much easier than trying to get someone that doesn't know your business, doesn't know your ethos yeah. on board and then trying to get them to fit that, especially in the first few hires at least. So I think for us at least, it's about saying, right, this person has followed Triage for a while. They know what we're about. They know that we present our content in an ethical manner, in a nuanced manner. They know we're not just about the clickbait. We know them in return. So that's where I would generally start. You know, find people that are already a little bit close to you, that you have some trust in already. And then over time, you'll become more and more comfortable with reaching out beyond that circle, which is still something that that we're working on. You know, our next few hires probably will be people that are beyond that circle a bit further. Um, and, And I appreciate that can be a little bit uncomfortable. Now, in terms of when to hire, I think that a lot of business coaches or people that are higher up in business than me will tell you, you know, hire sooner rather than later. And I think that's generally good practice. I think it's difficult early on to bring other people into your business, especially if, if you've started this, because it's your baby. And it's, it's like taking your baby to crash for the first time. You don't yeah. want to leave them there. And it's a similar thing when it comes to your own business. But the thing, the problem is, especially in fitness, people are, start off as great coaches. That's what they're good at. And suddenly they're trying to be business owners and they're trying to do marketing, yeah. they're trying to do sales, they're trying to do you know, outreach, outreach, they're trying to do content creation. And it's not a given that you have all of those skills. So for example, yeah. it might just be, I don't know, crap at sales. You're not good at the phone. You're not, you're not good at closing deals or marketing, or you've got so many leads coming in through marketing, but you just can't close the deals on sales. And you don't want to be doing that. 
that's the point at which you think about hiring, where someone yeah. else can fill the gap in your skill set, and therefore you can focus on the things that you're actually best at. I think that's that's really where hiring comes into play. I think that's such good advice because I think when you're starting a new business, like ninety nine percent of what you're doing is outside your skill set. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a big learning curve. Um, but yeah, the next question is. Do you think you'll always pursue online coaching? We've kind of touched on that already. Yeah, I would say like the answer there is, is no, really. Like, I mean, I, I, I would like to keep up some, some clients for um, probably another few years. But uh, I think that the question is always, you know, like one, what do you enjoy doing? But then two, what can you offer to the world? And I think that like in terms of, my skill set and where I'm going in terms of medicine and things like that. I think education is probably where my skill set is better served, even if I do enjoy coaching, but I enjoy education as well. So it's, it's no big deal. Yeah, hundred percent. And what field are you most interested in when it comes to medicine? Tough question. I ask myself this every day. Um, <laughs> no, I like, I, I love, I love surgery. If I wasn't involved in fitness and I didn't want to keep my hand in in triage and in fitness and have a bit of balance, I suppose, between my own training even and prioritize my own health and family, then I'd do surgery. Neurosurgery specifically, that's what I've done my elective in. That's what I've done my research in. Um, really like neurosurgery, really like surgery. But I think practically um, the, the intensity of surgery is just all in. You know, you're talking 70 to 100 hour weeks for a decade. Um, and I'm just not sure that that's compatible with my life as it is currently. So I think probably I like cardiology, I like pediatrics, I like a couple of other things, but um, yeah, it's still a little bit of a dilemma. Thankfully in Ireland, you don't actually have to decide too soon. So you do okay. your, inter your intern year, which is a general year. Then you do a couple of years of general training in either medicine or surgery or whichever kind of broad field you want to go into. And then you subspecialize after many years. So you still have a bit of flexibility. Okay. Yeah. I think it's all about trade-offs, isn't it? It's like 100 hour a week. Like, yeah, like, I don't think many right. people can commit. Yeah. Next question then. So resting heart rate is going up the last few weeks and heart rate variability is often low. I've increased running, so I'm confused. Could I be underfueling? So this was from a female. Okay. So, sorry. So heart rate variability has been dropping. Resting heart rate has been going up. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so if you've been running, like there are a number of different things that could be going on here. Okay, so generally speaking, if someone's resting heart rate is increasing and their heart rate variability is decreasing, it's it, it's a sign of higher sympathetic nervous system drive. So generally, the body's in a little bit more of a stress state. Um, so this can often reflect a state of under recovery. So, for example, uh, people think about running and they think about cardio training as something that reduces resting heart rate and something that increases heart rate variability. But there's a long-term adaptation. So it doesn't mean that week to week, those things are going to be happening. Because if you're in an intensive phase of running where you're doing a very high volume, you might be under-recovered or you might be struggling with recovery or your body just might be in a more stressed state. So as a result, your resting heart rate could be elevated and thus your heart, your heart variability could be uh, decreased. So there could be a number of different things going on there. You know, it could be, could be under-fueling potentially or it could just be an excessive spike in, in training load. Maybe sleep is poor, maybe stress is higher otherwise. Very difficult to say without further information. Yeah, I feel like with most questions, it's always like, it depends. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's all the always the answer. <laughs> uh, not what people want to hear, but it's always the answer. 
Um, and then just to sum up, Gary, what are some words that you would live by or like a life motto that you would live by? Oh, there's definitely a lot. Like I'm full of those kind of cliches. Let me think. <laughs> what, do, what, do, what do I say to myself? I suppose, I suppose the main thing is, is do what you should do. Um, that's probably mm-hmm. like a summary. Like there's definitely more fleshed out versions in, in, in my head there. But I think just doing what you should do is probably the most important thing because that, that crosses from the, the ethical and the moral, but also into the practical in terms of your work each day. Because especially, you know, if you're running your own business as a personal trainer, even like a lot of the time we kind of do what we want to do. Like, for example, yeah. if you're posting on social media, what am I going to post today? I'm going to post what I want. I like, but is it just what you want or should you be posting for other people, for your clients, et cetera? Um, similarly, you know, if you're, I don't know, cutting a corner in your coaching by just giving someone a, a generic template that you use for everyone, like, might that work for the clients? Maybe. Is it what you should yeah. do? Probably not. And you kind of know that yeah. yourself. So I think do what you should do in terms of hard work, in terms of trying to do good, in terms of, you know, getting up when you said you'd get up, getting up when the alarm goes off, doing the workout when you said you were going to do it, sticking to yes. your nutrition if there's no reason not to. All those things, yes. you know. Yeah, showing up for yourself 100%. Exactly. Um, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure as well. The rain literally just started there as we finished. Oh, so it was perfect. Perfect, perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs>